Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Ready, Good evening and welcome to the Cranky Molecast. <laughs> Damn let's, you, Mott. Let's start by complaining about something. Mott's. It's not Mott's this time. Uh, the EPRC's formatting of the <laughs> European Rugby Champions Cup. They got rid of the. They got rid of. They got rid of the, the Heineken Cup that everybody loved, and they reformatted and told everyone was better. And then it wasn't. And then they changed the format was because of COVID ostensibly, but ultimately they wanted to get rid of as many match days as they possibly could while having the same amount of teams in it. So they came up with this Swiss system, as it's called. Where essentially you have this big jamboree of a of a group stage. Two and cantons. What, 24 teams and only eight of them get eliminated. And you only have to win one game to get through. Uh, it's just essentially a means of spelling, selling sponsorship around rugby content. A sponsorship and getting people through the doors. I listened to a good podcast with Mark Evans, formerly of Saracens, Quinns. And he's a really interesting guy, really good rugby administrator. So he spoke about the fact that they can't run a straight knockout competition because clubs want to have a guaranteed number of games which they can sell and get tickets through, uh, people through the turnstiles, get ticket revenue for it. So there's always going to be a group stage uh, rather than just boiling down from, say, 32 teams down to two, for example. Uh, But it does look like the current... Um, system of the the two cantons intermittently going to war against each other. It's like it's like um, it's like the Charles the Bold and the Emperor Maximilian that we were talking about earlier. It's like hundreds and hundreds of little tribes occasionally fighting against each other with no real reason. And at the end of it, you come up with the the cup proper, which is which is where we'll start again at the end of the Six Nations. Uh, they should, in my opinion, just go back to either a six pools of four or five pools of four. There's a funny situation in England where, you know, for next year, it looks like they'll have eight qualifiers in the Champions Cup out of 11. So you have to go out of your way not to qualify. <laughs> you know? Well, oh, yeah, okay, go on. Yeah. Um, and you had the circumstance this year where. You know, what did it take not to qualify is you literally had to lose all your games. So Martin and I from um, the uh, United uh, United Rugby Championship, who is also on the EPCR board, are saying, yeah, they are looking at it. I read an article about that this morning saying that people are sort of frustrated with it. There's a lack of jeopardy and they sort, they sort of compare it to what went before and most people prefer it to what went before. Except me. Yeah, you see, you were saying that. Yeah, I, um, I think that it like the EPCR is an it's it's an easy uh, organization to dislike, and they've definitely made a bit of a hames of, of a few things, and they they certainly haven't made uh, like an overall improvement on what went before. But I I, I would contend that. In the old format, particularly near the latter years of it, there was definitely a lot of dead rubbers in round six, and there was occasional dead rubbers in round four. Um, now, what was very good about the old format was um, you had six games. The, um, the draw was well flagged. It was easy to understand who was playing who. So you knew it was very good for travel. Like It was mm-hmm. very good for trips. And you got that double header. And a lot sort of pivoted around the double header, where um, you you know the the difference between the home and away match was enormous. Like you know Leinster hammering Borgoyne like ninety two three, and then needing a bit of Brian O'Driscoll trademark inspirational magic to win the following weekend it was just an example of of like the 
l'esprit de clash in action. But I think with with the current format is the opening rounds are nonsense. Um, but the final rounds are do have jeopardy in them. And there's going into the last game, you don't know how it's going to end up. Like you, you the 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 repercussions for points difference are quite significant. Um, I can't remember exactly the permutations, but the Saracens Edinburgh match was on. Oh, Ed- yeah. Edinburgh Saracens yeah. match was on a Sunday evening, and had Edinburgh not conceded points in like the seventy somethingth minute to Saracens, who still lost, then Munster would have played Edinburgh in Murray or in Scotland or mm-hmm. in Scotland. I, I, I think yeah. I think that was uh, that was the breakdown, and because Sarri scored. Uh, and got a bonus point, Munster ended up having to travel to Durban. So, like, a massive impact for Munster on a match on a Sunday evening in the last round of the competition. So, I think that's significant. And then if you look at how um, frustrated and, like, how, how, how vocal Leo Cullen was last year with the decision about Leinster being unable to travel to Montpellier or being prohibited from traveling to Montpellier and then having the 28 nil result given against them. Um, like it didn't affect things because the the final, sorry, I say it didn't affect things. The final was scheduled for Marseille. So Leinster were still going to lose to La Rochelle in Marseille regardless. And they won their two away match or they won their away match against Leicester. But they would have had a home match and Leinster finished, they made sure they finished top of the group. Mm. Like they, they bonus pointed everybody. They were interested from the, the, the first kickoff against Racing in the first match. And now Leinster are at home in for the rest of the competition because the final's in Dublin. But from a <laughs> rugby... Assuming they get to the final. Oh, sorry, assuming that they get to the final. But like they're but they're at home for the rest. Sorry, so they're at home for the rest of Leinster's competition. Yeah. So for as long as they're in it, they'll be they'll be kicking off in the Aviva. So from a Leinster rugby point of view, that's great. I don't know exactly the the revenue split, but I think the home team gets most of the revenue. So not only is it good rugby, good sports, it's good business. Um. So there is a jeopardy point to it in in basically like you're more likely to win your home match, but also you'll get more money. Mm. So I, like, I, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, like, the way it is, they four tiers of six clubs, and it's the first and second are tier one. First and second from the three leagues are tier one, and so on and so forth. And they they, they mix it up like that. That That's why the groups are the way they are. It's not perfect, but I, I don't think it's that bad. Uh, nah. it, it's the It's the... Like essentially, Leinster qualify from this into the next round of this tournament, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm actually thinking of it as qualification, and then like knockout is too simple. It's actually just a big sorting with minimum qualification jeopardy. It's like, are you Gryffindor or Slytherin? Like you're still going to be in Hogwarts, but you know, are, yeah. you, are you damned to a life of uh, toadying around the Dark Lord, or are you uh, the the boy who lived? Okay, well, let's talk about Leinster winning their game against Racing. <clears throat> they were behind in the second half. Didn't really feel like they were going to lose this one uh, in the same way that it felt like they might lose against the Ospreys. Different context, different tournament. Being at very, home. Very different team. And obviously, yeah, being at home. Um, but it still took a little bit of digging out and it ended up being a very, very healthy win against a uh, Racing team who are very tough defensively and have a few really good players. I'm not sure if they're a great team, though. No, uh, but there's, it's funny in that they're really disciplined and they are really good defenders. It's not something you necessarily uh, associate with Racing. Certainly the Racing team that I would have sort of have in my head is is, is missing a lot of players. It's the, the team with Fakatawa, Teddy Thomas, Finn Russell, Imhoff, uh, Zebo. So, like, one of those players was out on the pitch against um, against Leinster. Uh, that was a funny game in that Leinster's backs won it in the in the first game uh, in Paris. Leinster's sco- forward scored four out of five tries, and in the in the game in Dublin, Leinster's backs scored four out of five tries, especially the outside backs actually. Um, 
And I thought that the outside backs between Jimmy O'Brien, Gary Ringrose, the two of those especially, but also Keenan and Larmer had really good games. Uh, really impressed. I think that was the, the best I've seen Jimmy O'Brien play on the wing. I, th- I thought he was, you know, pretty close to faultless. He, he was, he's always very, you know, he's a fullback playing winger. But this time in an attack, I thought he showed just really good touches. He's really, he was much harder to knock over than I've seen him before. Like James Lowe was a big loss whenever he's not in the Leinster team, but it's not like Jimmy O'Brien stepped in and was James Lowe, but he did make a lot of line breaks. He beat defenders. He didn't get knocked over in the first contact, and he got a lovely offload away for Hugo Keenan's try. He was, Andrew Porter was probably overall my man in the match, but I would have had to split that between a forward man in the match and a back man in the match. I, oh yeah, um, I always give it to Andrew Porter. So uh, I give I gave my man of the match to Jordan Larmer. I thought uh, I thought Larmer was very good. Um, I think there's a real issue of you know uh, fitting fitting results to the narrative, which I'm completely going to do. And I think the combination. It seems to me that the combination of Leinster losing. Uh, two knockout matches in essentially a week. Um, and the disappointment of that has focused their mind, coupled with the confidence that comes of beating the All Blacks in um, in New Zealand in a test series, uh, which a lot of the squad did, a lot of the first team did, and, and bringing that back um, has made them even more formidable. Like the... The opening match against Racing was a superb display. That they, they didn't let Racing lay. A, they didn't let Racing get a punch in. Like they, they, they really just from the off took took the wind out of their sails and competed so hard in defence. And that was that was a hallmark. So the two away matches, I thought Leinster's defence and work rate in defence was was excellent. Um, whereas the home match was was a tough game. And you read like Finn Russell talked afterwards about. Rassing's approach and he said like Champions Cup was our main goal having been in three finals not managed to win like and he says the main goal for the team is Europe so it is frustrating and disappointing to have been knocked out in the group stage um, so it was it was a big deal for Rassing like they were they were really trying in that match they really wanted to stay in the competition um, but playing against Leinster is you got to be on for 80 minutes. That's another one of the hallmarks. So as well as Racing played, and I don't think Leinster's bench was as strong as it's been in other matches or as strong as it possibly could be, but in the last 15 minutes, um, Leinster just showed the concentration and the resolve uh, to keep at it. Yeah. So I think I think that was a real feature of the match. I think to contrast the two games when and it's a very good point about the forwards winning the away match is that Tyke Furlong and Jason Jenkins started the away match and didn't start the home match and you know if I had to draw a straight line between the performance of the front five in both games I'd point to the absence of those two guys yeah missing the right hand side of the scrum is especially when you have a guy like Furlong who's sort of the as we've said before widely regarded as as the the best tight head in in the the world game, you can't really replace a guy like that. So, um, can't at all. No, oh, no, you can, you can. Sorry, Joe, you're right, you can. But it's not just like set piece solidity. I know, like you were you were comparing him to Malherba, mm. and the South Africans love him, but their tight head probably doesn't need to distribute out. No, he like Malherbe short tip passes give you know because the South Africans don't need that in their game. So no. you get a guy who's a really solid scrummager like that. That's what they want and need because they can cover the rest of it. But you get a guy like Furlong for an Irish team, and not only does he bring that set piece expertise, his broken field and his footballing ability is 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 irreplaceable. Mm. That combination is irreplaceable. I thought that the bench actually, as you're saying, like maybe not on paper the best bench that Leinster have fielded uh, this season but I actually thought they performed really well uh, to a man and you know made a significant difference and also as you said about like playing the 80 minutes um, you know I, I read a number of reports that say that those tries added a gloss to it and you're going well like it's not as though they happen after full time like you're supposed to play 
80 minutes. You're supposed like if the game finishes up after 75 minutes, we would be European champions last season. You have to play the full 80. Adding adding a gloss to the scoreboard is like it's, it's a distraction. Just, it's completely irrelevant. But it's like just the score. That is just the score, you know? It's journalist talk, though. Mm. It's like a team scores a load of points in the first half. If they don't, then they've taken their foot off. And you go, no, that's just that's just to fill column inches. That's not that's not strictly true. Mm. So so <clears throat> should we do the usual addressing uh, concerns about uh, Leinster's scrum and Leinster's mall defence? No, I think that's so covered. Like, I don't really have an awful lot to add to that or say about it. What I would say about it is that, like, it's not going to change. Like, it'll change if we have Jason Jenkins and Ty Furlong playing. It'll be a bit better. It still won't be this, like, massive devouring scrum. It's always going to be a scrum that mainly copes an opposition ball and might win some penalties on its own ball, but will mainly try to get quick ball. Like because look at the way the rest of the team plays. Yeah, all the they, time. they do try and play with the ball off the scrum. Line of defense was much better against Rousing in the first game when those two, like both Jenkins and and Furlonger, are really good in the ball. You know, against Gloucester we tried a different tactic with sending Ross Maloney up to to poach. Um, so uh, to be honest, I think I actually think that topic is. A, sort of been talked to death it, it it has reminded me of something though that I did want to talk about so will, will I say it now about where the penalties are yes so I, I've been of this opinion for a few weeks and watching the Munster to lose match made me think of it even more that and, and I read Matt Williams I, I often read Matt Williams at the weekend um, and I don't always agree with him but I, I thought he wrote um, and he's biased because he's an old coach but he wrote an article in favor of older coaches and passing on that sort of knowledge which i thought that's kind of hackneyed but he also made the point that like a lot of guys who are coaches now are just coming straight from the professional game and i i feel that a lot of those like look at frank lampard like are they just jargon heavy like in rugby they're going to be jargon heavy in in football they're they're not going to have the depth of expertise that you need and like sort of having confronted different different challenges. Like Lampard would be a better manager for his uh, failures at Chelsea and, and Everton, but not to get distracted by that. So it's absolutely gospel that if you're tackled in, in broken field and you go down, that don't turn over the ball. And with jackals coming in, you hold on to the ball on the ground and you don't give it up. And you look at it and you go, does that make sense? Like, because look at Marchand against Munster and look at the amount of jackals that he puts in. And you go, okay, you don't turn over the ball against this guy. He gets a penalty. They'll kick at 30 to 40 metres down the pitch. So you're going to be defending a set piece against a big team in your own 22. Whereas if you did turn over the ball... What are they going to do with it? Like Munster turned over the ball in their own 22 against Toulouse and then Tyke Byrne tried to kick it out and he kicked it into one of his own players. And you go like, it, it, sometimes it isn't that much benefit to turn over the ball. Like if you're not expecting to turn over the ball, if, you, if you've got into a situation where every breakdown just ends in a penalty, you're not used to, oh, I've turned it over and you go, what the fuck do I do with it now? Mm. So I really think if I were coaching a team, I would be looking at a situation where... Going into a tackle, I just go, you got to make a decision that if you think you're going to lose it, lose it. And it's up to everybody else to, uh, it's up to everybody else to react and make sure you lose it and you place it nice and clear. So it's very, very certain that you're not holding on. Don't see the penalty. Make them turn over, make them play. In fact, well, you, you came to the point I was going to make, is it rather than, if you think you're going to lose it, it's like if you think your your support is slow or like even just a little bit slow, you have to do really long presentation. Hugo Keenan is so good at it. And like it was a hallmark of like Joe Schmidt teams. That presentation was really good for most players. Rob Carney would always get tackled in the wrong way and then for some reason get away with rolling around for ages. Yeah, him and Henshaw, they used to call that body ball. Yeah, I think it's because there's players who believe that they can get through uh, tough physical contact 
certainly a player like Henshaw would definitely back himself. A player like Keenan knows that like that's not his he's not gonna plow through someone. He's gonna try and skirt around someone or you know, he'd take the tackle, but present the ball very long. For starters, it's really hard to jackal if the ball's long, because you look like you're gonna be leaning on your hands. And then sort of the second point is basically if anyone gets on you now, even if you release the ball, you're gonna get it and you have it hold it held into you. You're getting a penalty given again given away because like it's the game has become that sort of like it's like a reward for doing the action rather yeah. than someone actually denying you picking up the ball. Yeah. It's now, a reward for getting into the jackal position and showing you're lifting it. Rather, you know, it's yeah. If you if you get into jackal and put your hands on the ball, you get a penalty. It doesn't matter if you're gonna get like, you, you don't have to lift it up and, and get it back. The the risk of placing it really long is that it's outside the rook, so the opposition can just run through and hack it on, and that. That still puts you down the pitch. Now, I still think it's better than giving away a line at 40 metres down the pitch, particularly as so many teams have enormous packs. So keeping the game flowing uh, doesn't suit them because aerobically those guys... Like, look at La Rochelle. Look at the amount of guys, 130, 140 kilos, 120, 130, 140 kilos they have. doesn't suit them to have a game that isn't stop-start. Yeah, exactly. If the, if the, if the ball is in motion... Because you can't really tire out players anymore when you have an eight-man bench. Not that you can't tire out players. When you have an eight-man bench, you can sub off the big players and bring on other big players. Yeah. But keeping the ball in play for two and three minutes taxes those guys a lot. And set-piece suits them. So if you're a Leinster and if you're any Irish team and you've got issues with set-piece defence, just stop giving away set-pieces, particularly in your own 22. Just let them have the ball, 60 metres, and go, do you know what, we're fitter than you. We just tackle you. See what you can do with it. That was interesting. I thought that Munster were way fitter than Toulouse. Toulouse started crash-bang wallop for the first 18 minutes. They were racing off the line, hammering. Like, there was one uh, uh, part of play where there was three enormous races off the line from forwards, three smashing tackles. And you're going, Jesus, this is this is going to be ugly. Like, 11-0. And then, then that stopped happening. Basically, it's like, these guys are fucking huge. You know, Mayafu, like, Roy Arnold is, is actually fit, but, like, they're a very, very, very big, heavy pack. And that blood and thunder first 15 to 18 minutes, just they just wore out. Monster Wars, I felt so much fitter uh, throughout the game. And I had so much belief, so I think when... Like, journalists aren't neutral, you know, like an English journalist writing about that match, an English paper covering that match gives it a sidebar or gives it a paragraph and a roundup. So, you know, a French journalist is, oh, you know, Toulouse ran out. An Irish journalist is Munster were heroic. And look, I thought that Munster were fitter. Mm. And I also thought that they had a huge amount of belief in their fitness and stickability. And... They didn't stick to the script that Toulouse are used to. Toulouse are used to teams going down there, getting blitzed in yeah, the first 15. And rolling over. And just rolling over. And Munster didn't roll over. And Toulouse were like, stick to the fucking script, boys. Yeah, and Munster were like, out here. get out get out of it. You we're know, not going to. And it's still 20 minutes until my next 20 stone man can come. But I, I, think it, I think it goes back to the same point of the game is 80 minutes. Mm. Play it. Like, just, just because you're 15 points down in the first 10 minutes, like, okay, not great play it the greatest game ever played and the Wallabies lost it but they were 21-0 down against the All Blacks or 21-3 21-0 down against the All Blacks yeah. in five minutes yeah. and they just stuck at it and it's it like it made it an absolutely epic game because you're there going like which way is this going to yeah. go this is the 2000 match in the Sydney Olympics stadium um, but it was it it was a great indication of a team with they're world champions with tremendous fortitude, tremendous confidence, playing at home against a team that were absolutely rip-roaring and on form. And uh, it's it's worth bearing in mind because most teams can't do it. Most teams can't go down to Toulouse and um, go down and face into that welter and, and stick with it. Now, you can point to it and you go, oh, another moral victory for Munster. But I, I thought it was... A super match for Munster, yeah. and I thought it was really encouraging from an Irish rugby point of view because the the second try they scored was great handling, and you're there going, these guys 
are going to come into the Irish camp and they're going to be full of confidence. These guys are going to come in and start putting pressure on the other incumbents. It's not going to be just Leinster plus, like, you know, a, a, few, province, yeah. a few sort of randoms to, like, flavour it out. It's going to be... There's a bit more competition for places. Plus, the style of rugby that they're playing is much closer to the style of rugby that Leinster play and that Ulster have aspired to at other times. And that suits Irish people. Because, like, you're looking at... Van Grand coaching Munster as like small pale Springboks, small pale South Africans, and you're going, this is nonsense. This doesn't suit Ireland at all. It's not good for the Irish national team if Munster play like a poor Curry Cup team. Whereas Munster playing fast, fit, ball hand and rugby, that suits Ireland. That's great. How far do you think Munster have come given their winning record is still at 50%? They're eight wins, eight defeats for the season. And do you think that, you know, um, well, you know, how close, how, how, how far along have they come and like how far, much further do you think they can go? I, I think they've made a huge leap. And the reason I think that is for the second try. So I would have said maybe last week that, the things that Munster have done that make them a much better team this season, the obvious things are fitness and defence. And that they're the first things that any coach with any cop on will do. You just get your team miles fitter and you make sure that they know what they're going to do and you make sure that they can tackle. And that will improve your results. Like, without fail, that'll make you a better rugby team. But it won't push you... It'll it'll cap you off. It's and I call it the Richard Cockrell. And you sort of go like, oh, Edinburgh become much better when Richard Cockrell came in, but they still couldn't win anything because their attack was very limited. So Munster are definitely much fitter, which is hard work. Their defence is definitely much better, uh, which again is hard work and organisation and a willingness to work for each other. But their ability to attack is something that would give an awful lot of optimism as a Munster fan because it means that they can win matches. So not only are they now difficult to beat, they're also able to win matches. The downside that they have is that they lack a cutting edge out wide. With their back, their back three is one-paced. Now, I'm a big fan of Shane Daly as a fullback. Mike Haley gets the most out of it. It's really good to see Calvin Nash. But, like, that's... Go back to what we were talking about with Rassing. That is not Juan Amoff, Teddy Tomah, and... Vakatawa. Vakatawa. It's just... It, it, like... The system is going to score all the tries and it's not going to score as many as you want rather than just getting a guy in like a sliver of space, like a Teddy Tomah in a sliver of space and that's it. It's, it's, it's game over because he's just an incredible athlete. Yeah, they don't score a lot of tries and where they, who, who does score tries from is like a lot of tries come through Coombs um, via the millionaire latch from uh, Jan Klein and... Like what you said there about the sort of the low hanging fruit that they've made up. I was actually thinking earlier this week about like they had that very stuttering start to this season on the round tree. And you're thinking, I think we were amongst the people who said last year, like they could have just sacked Van Gran when he decided he was going to go and handed over the job to Roundtree. And they might have got a lot of now They wouldn't have had Prendergast, which is he's been a significant contributing factor, but uh, they could have got some of those some of that learning curve done at the end of at the end of last season which was essentially becoming a write-off anyway um because as you say like it's the the mood in Munster and amongst Munster supporters is very good but where they are this season is absolutely average you know 16 games played eight won eight lost they finished essentially or you know at the moment they're essentially mid-table in both uh, in both their pools in the in the league and in the cup and I think they're mid-table because of their failings as an organisation, and that sounds a bit stronger, rather than their failings as a team. I think their their team, uh, and I mean coaching staff and players, are, are admirable. And talked about the, the good impression that Graham Rowntree made, you know, on his Paul Kimmage interview, um, Mike Prendergast, the way the team worked for each other, their resilience going down to Toulouse and being behind and... and you know, having the fight for it, like, that's admirable. But the way that they kept Van Grand for so long, their recruitment policy, and you're sort of going, like, was Malachi Fekatoa the player that they really needed? Like, was was that where to put all your money? Um, and 
you know, where they finished in the league last year, results in the sort of the draw they get in the Champions Cup this year, the slow start that they made because they didn't bite the bullet, like Hugo was just saying, and, and, and get rid of Van Gran and just start in with Roundtree. Um, and, and just the way that they're set up. So again, like I'm, I'm fairly sure we talked about this last year, is that Van Gran was the head coach of Munster. But then he had Larkham and... Um, he had he had Larkham and Roundtree and then you're looking at the bits that Van Grand coaches and you're there thinking to yourself so what the fuck does Larkham do like are, are they not doing the same thing like they've no director of rugby so like if, if, if Van Grand is the head coach and then you had the situation as well which is going upstairs one from that in that Van Grand had announced that he was going to leave um, you know before Christmas of last year and they were re-signing players uh, throughout January and, and Munster are, are different than Leinster in that they re, they announce their signings in, in tranches as sort of as they happen. So players were being signed in in January, February, March. Or their signings were being announced. You're going, well, who who signed this guy? You don't have a coach for next year. So is is Van Gran advising the CEO and the board that this player should get a contract for two years or three years? You're going like you're going. Well, he's not going to be there to coach him next year. So that obviously you have to resign players, but that's one reason amongst amongst others why it would have made sense to go like Van Gran knows us, like he's he's off today. He's not coaching these lads next year. Why is he making decisions? Or if he was making decisions, why is he why is he making decisions to sign him? Or if he's not making the decisions, who the fuck is making the decisions to resign players for for another two years? Or something? You don't even know who your coach is going to be next year. You know, and I'm not talking about players who you're always going to have in your, you know, like a, like a, a Tigburn is a no-brainer. But you're guy, talking about guys who are more fringe players on the team. They still have to get paid. That still costs real they, money. They take up your budget. They take up your budget. And Munster, once again, have the biggest squad of of any of the Irish provincial teams. They've, yeah, they signed players during this season as well. But like they have 48 players in their, in their senior squad. And you're going like... There's a significant number of them who were signed last year or re-signed last year, and they're just like, oh, it's obvious that Roundtree isn't going to play them. But this is something which has happened time and time again. Well, um, also worth pointing out, I think that they now probably feel like they'd offered John Ryan, or they shouldn't have got rid of him in the first place, or maybe he's playing better because they got rid of him and he has to prove himself. Yeah, but he seems to be playing, you know, well. Like but God's brother, yeah. He's off. To uh, Waikato, Waikato on the back of, and maybe it maybe like the Jeopardy made him play some of the best rugby of his late career. But no, but it, it's, it's no, no, no. But it, it's a really good point. Sorry, but you you finish off. Well, it, it just serves that like it serves the kind of well, who was doing making the decisions. It underlines that. But it, it's a re, like he's he's a great example, and also James Cronin. Cronin, if you look at player, yeah. if you look at the marginal costs, so let's say that we offered Ryan, let's say Munster offered Ryan, I don't know, one hundred and eighty thousand, and he just goes, well, look, like I'm a I'm a starting tighthead prop, I can get like two hundred and forty thousand. I don't know if these figures are correct, and you're sort of going, well, we can't afford that. We can get like one hundred and ninety five, and he just goes, look, you know need to get paid here. You know, I'm going to be retiring. I'm going to be on Civvy Street. Um, that difference of 55,000, you've wasted that in some fringe player who's fucking plays 30 minutes for you. Like, and, and that's when if you have a bloated squad and you have the budget spent on the fringe player, that money is gone. Like you, you've wasted it. And that's the marginal money that you can give to John Ryan and James Cronin. Correct. Or a skills get, coach. Or a skills coach. Because a skills like, coach isn't a big salary guy. Yeah. But particularly to like, you know, starting props who are yeah. experienced and you go, you can keep these guys if you don't spunk away your budget on fellas who are never going to play to you and never going to move the needle. And that's that's the thing when you're looking at the the overall picture and you're not getting distracted by the emotions of personalities and all that. You're sort of going, look, I have to fit all this stuff together. That's my job. So the reason I think that this is is worth talking about today is because the news came out Murray Kinsler broke it that uh, Ian Costello who's the Munsters academy manager and who gave a great interview last year and you're going well somebody in that building knows what they're talking about last season um, and who Munster gave their best performances of the season when Van Gran was stuck in South Africa with COVID and they went over and beat Watts that was under Ian Costello he'll become the province's head of rugby operations now 
Roundtree is still... So, he'll become that. His role to involve, quote, elite player pathway, succession planning, provide recruitment support for developing, retaining, and recruiting players, end quote, for head coach. Roundtree is still the head coach. So they don't, they, they don't have a director of rugby. And the way that I have it in my head, and I would imagine that most people have it in their head, is that the director of rugby is the boss, and then the head coach is the tracksuit on the field. And those roles still probably haven't bedded down, and I think they're kind of fluid in terms of whoever the personality is. But those tasks still have to be fulfilled and whether it's the guy who's the boss fulfilling them or whether it's the guy who is picking up all the pieces around the guy who's the boss who's the coach is is kind of irrelevant what matters is that somebody is doing those jobs and what i mean by that is that whether you're the director of football or whether you're the manager you somebody has to scout your players and negotiate how much you're selling them for. I'm thinking of football now, negotiate how much you're selling them for, how much you're going to buy, what sort of players you need to buy. And the manager might go, look, I have, I have a veto, but I'm not the only one making this decision. So with Liverpool, you could see how well Liverpool bought players and how well they sold players. And you'd imagine like Klopp had a big, big impact in it, but he wasn't doing all that work of like identifying who they wanted to buy, who they wanted to sell, negotiating with other clubs about how much they sold players to Crystal Palace for. Like, I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of money that Liverpool got for some of their players when Michael Edwards was, was it Michael Edwards? Yeah. Was in charge. But that's a club really performing at its optimum. And Munster were not that for the yeah, last five years. And if you're Ian Costello, like his job when it's about a player pathway thing, it's not just a player pathway to getting into the Monster Academy, for example. It's like recognizing, okay, this year, like we have, I'm just, I, I, they do have locks in their academy, so let's choose another position. Like, well, we don't have, we don't have centers in our academy. Going, well, it's not like oh, we'll just wait until the next center comes along. You're going, no man, that's three years, say, without a center in the academy. So we fucking urgently need to get a center in, into the academy wherever that comes from. And it's also saying, if we have a year without, um, without like, that you have two players in the Irish under 20, they're going, oh, holy smokes. Then you go further down the train and go, we need to get our shit together. This might just be a dud year for, for one year out of, you know, three, but it might be that, like, there's some problem lower down the food chain we're getting lads who can get into an Irish under 20s team, fix that, rather than just allowing that to fester. Because Munster have had these two different spells where they haven't produced enough players through their own academy uh, and getting them into the team, getting them enough game time and making them you know, solid professional players for the province. And they can't allow that to happen for, like they've had, they've had runs of like three, four, five years where they've had minimal Irish under 20 representation and then minimal... Uh, progression into the pro ranks for Munster as a result of, they can't afford to have two bad years in a row now so I think that's going to be part of his job as well as like seeing the warning signs early and then at the other end deciding like we do not need to keep on paying this guy for what he did for us you know we're yeah. paying this guy for what he's going to do now yeah we're taking into account what he did for us but like we're not keeping guys we're not giving guys um we're not giving guys two-year deals when you're going like, we need we need to see, we're going to give you an incentive-laden one-year deal. Who, you know, and then we'll do that again next year. So if you get game time or if you score tries, yeah, you get you get a lot more money. But, you know, you are where you are, whether you're 32 or you're 34. You know, this is, you, you don't just go, oh, I'm going to pay you to turn like fucking 36 on the books you know, two seasons in decline, like which has happened a number of times. And it used to happen with the Ireland contracts. You'd see, like, Leamy getting Irish central contract, Donald O'Callaghan getting them when Pat Whelan was, and you're sort of going, oh, that's pure cronyism. It's pure monster. Like, giving the lads a payday, and you're there going with somebody else's money. But it's worse with when it's with your own. Who is that fullback that... Um, 
that they signed who never played for them. Gallagher. Gallagher from Saracens, yeah. Gallagher is the difference. Gallagher is why they couldn't afford John Ryan. If you want to draw yeah. a line between it, like what a waste of money. But there's, the all, there's, there's a bundle of players. There tends to be a bundle of players where you're going like, these players are not, they are playing like, I'm not saying they don't love Monster, but they're not playing just for like, they're not on, they're not amateurs. So they're getting a wage and what they're doing is holding tackle bags and playing like, you know, 30 minutes per three months and you're going like he's still taking money out of the organization it's still and this is you have to look at it like that cutthroat way i know it's people's dream to play for months and they don't want to give up on it and they'll stick even if they're not getting the game time but i still go no you're you're you run an organization like this fella is not contributing to it you you cut him i've got five words here dollar sign on the muscle dollar sign on the muscle yeah you have to put a dollar sign against the player's name. Uh, and you're going, this is what this guy is worth to the organization. And for example, you know, it's James Cronin, it's John, John Ryan, and I, I don't want to pick on players, but like you've got other props who do not play for Munster. And you're going, they are not just, they're not earning like fucking 25 grand. They are, they are the difference between keeping those guys. And you're, oh, we, we couldn't afford to keep James Cronin. You could have if you didn't sign that fucking other prop you'd ever play. For those uh, who are of a readerly disposition, the Moles would endorse the book Dollar Sign on the Muscle, which is about a year in the Philadelphia Phillies scouting organization around the time of the 1981 strike, which is in reprint, but also in Kindle, mm. and uh, is a superb book. Oh, it's a great read. It's a great read. It's a different sport, obviously. The, the, the nature of baseball is there's loads of opportunities to win and loads of opportunities to lose. Um and there's camar- like there's a lot of camaraderie inter inter team camaraderie, but there's also it's all been a business for a long time as well. So it's it's a good read. I'd recommend it to anybody. The crowd didn't like that. Someone needs to stop him. Uh, Mac Hansen retains possession of Connacht because Bundy's Bundy's angry. About something. Bundy's angry about something. God knows what's going on in the background there. Like, the idea at all, you know, we just told him to get fit. Yeah, I'm sure that's the fucking story. Like, uh, so Andy Friend quashed rumours that he was heading to Munster. You know, but there seems to be some sort of major, major, everyone's unhappy with each other in kind of players. Did, they, did he break a curfew? I'm, I'm sort of looking from at this from outside and going, Who knows, did, like, did Bundy break a curfew or did Bundy, like, was there some sort of disciplinary issue and Friendy called him up on it and Bundy was like, oh, he's not going to call me up on it. Yeah. And, uh, that's complete supposition. But, like, you're looking at it and you're going, something Doesn't ain't right here. Yeah, and, and that sort of stuff, like, that sort of stuff, there was a period when I was ITK, as it used to be known, and you would hear things and you're going, fuck, how hasn't that made it out like? How do more people not know that? I wouldn't like tell anybody because you're told like, oh, don't tell anybody. So I didn't, you know, so because you can hear it, still hear stuff. Now I don't hear any good stuff anymore, but like, stuff does not make it out into the public realm, you know. And and lads in a, in a say in an academy setting might hear it. They might be told by somebody who's in the academy, or lads who are on a committee, or lads who are uh, involved in the organisation say they're their husband or wife works in the organisation, might hear it. So I reckon, yeah, something happened. I don't know what it was. It's very strange, but he seems to have the complete faith of Andy Farrell, uh, which... And big personality. Farrell loves a big personality. It's different, different team. Yeah. yeah. Bundy's always produced for fast. Yeah. Absolutely. Scored, so, scored against Australia. As soon as he came on. in. Yeah. And he was deadly. So, um, <clears throat> Captain Ireland in New Zealand. In the first match of tour. Yeah. I don't know if there's much more to say about that kind of thing. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, puzzled by how even Birch, who knows every uh, transfer rumour. Birch doesn't world. fucking say everything, though. Birch yeah, knows way so. more than well, he, he says. He, no one knows what's, no one knows really knows what's happening at Connacht. In a sense, Connacht have ridden off the back of the 2016 league win, as well they should, for a long time. But it feels like maybe the magic is wearing off and there's a bit of a what's the fucking point of this team at the moment because <laughs> wow ah, they're just like it's just I don't know it, it feels like it's halfway between you know the kind of like plucky underdogs and halfway between just like this isn't very but good but Friendy's on the way out like Friendy like 
and I think he is like a great guy. But when once you announce that you're leaving, like you're a lame duck. Yeah. You know, yeah. that is just what it is. You're not there next season. People's minds are already going, will I have a contract next season? Who do I have to impress? You know, so he's on his way. That is always going to, that is always going to cause, no, not always, but most of the time that's going to cause like basically a little bit of a breakdown. I know what you mean though, because there's, there's times where Connick's performances absolutely reflect that just, ah, we're number four to four and we're always going to be number four to four. Um, Whilst you're trying their best though <laughs> <laughs> To make Connick feel better We'd be awful to make you feel better uh, it just, it, yeah. Thanks I guess <laughs> it, it just feels like if they can't keep their Well maybe Matt Hansen is now their best player But like their, their biggest star player And he's like pissed off the organisation It just sort of gives off a bad vibe about the whole thing And it's like it'll never be that rotten Because like of Connick's position It'll never be like the kind of rancor that Munster inspires in itself sometimes, or Ulster is inspiring in itself. Yeah, at yeah. At the moment, because there's there the expectation on them is so low, they'll never be that disappointed. But it just feels like, for large swathes of the seasons, everyone's going like, kind of, oh, Connacht, oh, it's just, oh, you know. But if, if they if they get their get their stuff together, I don't. Know, it just feels it, well. It feels a, even more hit. And it's miss a good point because they had a Connacht good season. tournament. In in the cha- in the Challenge Cup up until the most recent match, and then like picked a a team which was missing like good players, and you know they were explained away. Oh, this is why I didn't pick him. This is why I didn't pick him. Um, but but looking at that, you're going. But if you won that game, like you'd have a good road in. You'd have a good tilt at knockout rugby. You're not going to do anything in the league. The league is yeah. the league is gone from you. Um. And and instead they picked like a sort like a suboptimal team, not a sort of definitely a suboptimal team. They went over and they immediately went like three tries down to nil against Newcastle, who aren't complete patsies, I have to say, but like aren't it's not like going over playing Saracens or something like that, or Leicester. So it was a fuck up. It was a, a really big fuck up. And the thing is, Connacht haven't been awful this season. They they started off with a really tough run of fixtures, mm. which they lost. But then they recovered. Yeah. So you're sort of going like, this isn't a complete and utter basket case of a club. It it's it is just stuck in that awkward middle, Teenagers. mediocre, yeah. Ter- but they just they can't get out of it. And they know? should have got stronger. You know, they took in people like uh, took in the guys from Leinster, Murphy, like Dooley, Murphy, Dooley, especially Adam Byrne, Hawkshaw. Hawkshaw. And you're going like, these are like they're good players. There's, and there's four players. There's nearly a third of a team yeah. who are going to be on top of who you already have, yeah. which should make your depth better, should make your squad better, should make your training better. And you're sort of going, okay, grand, none of these guys are internationals. But, like, they're all Adam hardened Burnus. pros. Who? Yeah. Adam, Adam Burnett, sorry. Yeah. Adam Burnett is an international. But they're all hardened pros. Like, they... And it... Like, it, it just hasn't pushed the needle... That much, and maybe it's un, maybe it's unrealistic to expect it, but but also as you were saying, like nobody's writing the articles about it. When there's never like Munster attracts a lot of soul searching articles, um, because they're Liverpool, because they're Liverpool, <laughs> and all their former players dominate the media. Yeah, and but they're you, sponsored by a newspaper. Yeah, but you don't or their see ground is, you, know, you don't see one of their grounds like the in depth articles and like people they sort of people there we go with generalizations rugby journalists tend to have a very uh paternalistic approach to connaught like plucky little connaught and they never just go look what is this is a rugby team a pro rugby team what are they doing well what are they doing poorly why are they doing this poorly are they doing enough um because this is they they're at the moment they're in they're in a miasma and now they're not the only team in a miasma yeah, I didn't expect this to be the, the podcast where I went in on Connacht, but it turned out that way. Uh, do you want to talk about the Miasma and uh, Dwayne Vermeulen smashing oh, the Miasma? Oh, I, I certainly want to talk about <laughs> Dwayne Vermeulen. I want to look up Miasma. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the atmosphere in Ravers. Oh, and I want and to talk about Dwayne Vermeulen. Just, well, the two feet off each other. Correct. Um, 
Ravenhill is not unique in in the fact that it has terraces and it has a good mix of of genders, such like predominantly male. But like you see a lot of women at matches because yeah. Thomond has that as well. But um, you yeah, see a lot was, of old people at Leinster matches. A lot of old men at Leinster matches. <laughs> um, polite old men, polite, well healed old men. Yeah. Um, and the I thought Ravers was rocking, and yeah. I was I was there going, this is great. And I think the moment that made it rock more than anything else was... It was the best part of the weekend. Like, including, like, uh, being at the Leinster match and seeing us score some great choice. The, the, the hair in the back of my neck stood on end when Vermeulen got that ball off the, the goal line drop out and just decided, like, this isn't going right. I am just going to absolutely charge. I'm going to put the team on, on my, my back. back. Hey, check it out. Team is going on my back. Stoke up the diesel. Keep stoking. Keep stoking. Here comes the diesel. I thought it was amazing. Bang. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Uh, And and the whole stadium thought it was amazing. There was a roar. It's because it happened at nine o'clock on a Saturday. (laughs) They were absolutely fucking legless in there. But the roar that went up and that completely changed... And that game, that one run and just that bravery and that really old fashioned, as I said to you before, it was like the first hit up in State of Origin game three. Like, it's just like absolute old fashioned. Oh, mate, do it for your mates. Do it for your mates for Origin. Um, It was it was sensational. I I love seeing that. Like that is a that was something that uh, I thought completely changed completely changed the game for Ulster. And from then on, he, he as you said, put the team in his back, showed amazing leadership. Because that shit takes a toll. Like, that is a huge collision for everyone involved. But you love to see it. It was great. It was great atmosphere. Um, I was not impressed with Ulster. No, it was a I thought game. they were sloppy. thought they made a lot of mistakes. Individual mistakes. Uh, it was shit on a stick. Didn't think In that, that great arena. In a... Oh yeah, but like the atmosphere was brilliant, and you were like you're really cheering for them because yeah. you're going, God, like everyone's going to leave here happy, bar you know, Sale, yeah. um, who who are the bad guys? Yeah. Who cares? And they took it on the chin as well. Yeah, you know? uh, it was it was great. Uh, like uh, like that was a, a you know uh, a proper midweek European night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to look. Uh, did Sale manage to get eliminated from that tournament? Even though they beat Ulster by more than Ulster beat them by. Sure, they beat Ulster 39 0. Yeah. Uh, I can't get my head around the. Uh... Anyway, that's it. Digs like a demented mole there. 